0: This is Chatter. I'm Scott R. Anderson. This week, Chatter co-host and Washington Post national security reporter Shane Harris on his long-standing coverage of unidentified aerial phenomena, better known as UFOs. The
1: public has often a very exaggerated and inflated view of what the intelligence community is capable of doing and what it is capable of keeping secret. And that actually applies in spades to the UFO story. I had no assumptions about the intelligence community when I started covering it because I knew practically nothing about it. I knew what I'd seen in movies. I knew what I'd seen in books. I knew those things were almost certainly not accurate. I'm always trying to answer questions. I want to put labels on things. I find this story to be unique in what I cover and that I am perfectly happy not knowing (laughs) and just sort of being amazed.
0: Jane Harris, welcome to Chatter. Uh, Not for the first time. It's so good to have you with us today on the other side of the microphone, so to speak. That's my line, Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Usually I'm the one saying welcome. Well, I appreciate you letting me borrow it for this conversation that I'm I'm excited to have with you. Yeah. Um, So we are today going to talk about a topic we've had the opportunity to touch on before in a couple other forum, but never with a kind of dedicated focus that we're going to try and bring to this episode in this conversation and that is we're going to be discussing your experience as a national security journalist uh, and reporter and somebody who follows issues in that space very closely your experience covering a very unusual issue in that space and that is unidentified aerial phenomena uaps or which is which is kind of the new nomenclature for what people Mm -hmm. traditionally know as ufos unidentified flying objects Um, you have spent the last several years, many years, covering this topic in various degrees for the outlets that you work for. Uh, You've commented on it. You've come on Lawfare. You are Lawfare's designated UFO correspondent, for better or for worse. (laughs) Proudly, Uh, proudly. and, And you bring a really fascinating perspective as somebody who is, as a national security reporter, trained to be skeptical of the government, trained to understand how the government operates in those parts of the government that are beneath the surface and hidden in shadows a little bit more, dealing with classified information, things like that. And so your perspective on this, I think, is just uniquely valuable. And and I want to dig under the surface and get into your thinking, how you process it, how you contextualize these sorts of things. Um, And so thank you for finding the time to do that with me today.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to do it. And um yeah, I'm, I'm I'm ready. I'm ready for all your questions. The deep psychological probing into this will <laughs> entail. This, this is this is the very unnatural position I find myself in, but go
0: ahead. Yes, it's it's only fair <laughs> that a podcast about UFOs entail an unusual amount of probing and probing questions. I think, so. I think that's fine. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. There you go. Set up very nicely. Excellent well Thank done. you.
0: Thank you. So but let's start before we get into the subject matter at hand. I I, I want to spend some time fleshing out the Shane Harris story for Mm -hmm. those uh, of the listening audience who haven't had the opportunity to learn about your career and how you've come about doing the sort of work that you do. So let's start with this basic question, really, how did you become a journalist and particularly a national security journalist over the course of your career? Um, entirely by accident is the short answer. Um,
1: I, when I, well, when I was growing up, I wanted to be one of two things. I either wanted to be a writer or an astronaut. Um, and there were two very specific interests that I had. Um, and so I guess maybe that actually leads into some of the UFO fascination, but I was a total space geek, but I also, I wrote, I was very involved in theater when I was in high school and in college. I wrote plays in both. I was in a sketch comedy troupe when I was in college Um, and presumed that I would go into writing as a profession by writing fiction. Um, You know, like I was very interested in screenwriting. Um, I imagine maybe I'd write novels one day, but never had any ambition to be a journalist, never really had any understanding of journalism as a profession. I didn't write for my school paper. Um, I didn't, you know, I wasn't really active in anything journalistic as an extracurricular activity, Um, but I was a news junkie. And I mean, I don't think I called myself that, you know, at the time, but I can remember, probably being in like seventh or eighth grade and becoming aware of CNN headline news and the CNN headline news used to have this great 30 minute newscast where they would like, give us 30 minutes. We'll give you the world, that kind of thing. And they would repeat it every half hour. And I just remember just being fixated on the news. I was one of my few people in my peer group who read the newspaper on a daily basis or watched TV and was just very informed about the world. And, you know, I think that to my interest in current events, maybe, had an overlap in fiction because I was always interested in like documentaries and movies based on true stories and that kind of thing. So all this sort of nascent stuff that was probably percolating in my brain that <clears throat> maybe explains why I got interested in the profession. But after when I was in school and I was in college at Wake Forest, I was doing a lot of theater and I didn't want to major in what was my effectively my extracurricular life. So I picked an academic major and I picked politics because I was very interested in government. Our politics department was kind of more of focused on current events than history, I guess you would say, as a lot of political science departments are. And so that felt like a really nice academic kind of counterweight to all of the time I was spending in the theater when I wasn't in class. And I graduated in the late 90s in 98. And it sounds kind of like trite, but it's true. Like the West Wing was a very big show then. (laughs) And there was this kind of like romantic appeal about Washington. Uh, We were going through the Clinton impeachment trial. So there was a cynical attitude, I think, towards Washington. But it was just a very interesting, exciting city, which it always has been. I mean, young people are constantly drawn to it. And a lot of Wake students kind of gravitate to Washington for one reason or another. So I came here after college and thought, you know, it's a big city. I didn't want to move to LA just yet. I'd spent the summer out there two years earlier in a film production company and hated Los Angeles, just despised the city. I actually like it very much now, but I just didn't want to go there. New York felt a little big. I thought, eh, I'll start in Washington Um, and needed a job. Like I was waiting tables and tending bar at a local restaurant, like just trying to make rent. And a friend of mine from school said, kind of, you know, blithely one night, well, you're interested in politics and you're interested in writing, why don't you be a journalist? And I was like, yeah, sure, where do I sign up for that? Like absolutely no concept at all of what it takes to be a reporter, how you work your way up in the profession. I just I literally looked in like the Want ads and Congressional Quarterly at the time, CQ had this small magazine called Governing Magazine um, that they owned or the St. Petersburg Times Company owned it. Anyway, it was all part of the same family. And like on the CQ website, they were advertising a position at this magazine for a researcher. And You know, it was basically an entry-level job. I was like, ooh, a magazine, glamorous. That sounds fun. I've seen (laughs) movies about magazines. Like, it was a magazine about state and local government management. I don't know anything about that, but that didn't seem to matter. I was like, yeah, it's a magazine, cool. So I go and I interview for this job, and remember, it's like the late 90s, and the editor says, well, we really want a recent college graduate for this position because you know how to use the internet. (laughs) And it was literally like, as in like, he's been trained on the calculator, Um, You know, it was like this novel technology that I I learned how to use, literally learned how to use in college, a a web browser. It was Netscape at the time. Um, And they said, you know, we think the Internet has a lot of potential um, as a research tool in journalism.
0: Hey, a lot of foresight on their part. Good for them. They were on it.
1: Uh, So we were all just very naive. But to to Governing Magazine's credit, they were one of the few publications with a website where they did publish a lot of their printed material. Um, So they knew something was coming. But as an industry, we had no idea what the Internet was going to do. And it was this this kind of this moment where we we didn't realize the profound moment of transition we were in. But when it ended up happening was I ended up getting trained kind of without my knowing it by a lot of old school reporters and journalists on journalism. Um, They were training me in the craft, you know, I was doing fact checking of articles, I was, you know, going out and searching sources for data for charts, I was, you know, doing a spot interview here and there to help a reporter flesh out a story. And they were really teaching me the tools of the trade. And journalism is that is just that, is a trade. It is, you know, as my, my first editor said to me, your job is not to be an expert. Your job is to be an expert in finding experts and in finding authoritative sources. And that was really appealing to me, um, I think just kind of intellectually. And what was also really interesting was that the rhythm of a monthly magazine of You know, starting out from scratch, assigning the stories, bringing them in, writing them, editing them, designing the art, finding the photographs, laying out the page, you know, proofing the page, basically crashing at the last minute to get it out the door. That felt like putting on a play. The rhythm of it, the creative collaboration of it, the deadline nature and the way that once you're done, you just scrap it all and start over and do it again. That's like theater. And to me, I I just completely resonated with that and thought, whoa, I actually this subject matter is new, but this environment is completely familiar. Um, And I loved it. And I did that for a year. And then I decided I was going to move to L.A. Some friends of mine who were from college, we started a comedy troupe out there. I needed another job, <clears throat> so of course I went to work at a magazine. I went to work at a magazine called Movie Line, which is not Movie Phone. Some people think it's like remember Movie Phone, where you would call up and get showtimes and tickets. <laughs> it's not that. Um, movie Line was this monthly magazine that was about the entertainment industry, and I did that for about a year. They seemed impressed that I came from like a Washington magazine that like genuinely impressed them. And you knew how to use the Internet. And I knew how to use the Internet, big time. Like movie times without your phone. (laughs) Totally, yes, indeed. Like, I was not qualified for the job they gave me, but, like, whatever. So I did that for a year, and I really decided I wanted to come back to D.C. So this is a bit of a long-winded answer, but I got my D.C. in early 2001, and I get a job, an actual writing job in a magazine, in a magazine called Government Executive. And govexec.com is still around. If you work in the federal government, you know, you know, govexec, it's like a, it's like a magazine for feds, basically. And I was hired as one of the technology writers. Again, he knows the internet. Um, And at the time, it was a beat that was very much about like the federal government's use of technology and e-government and how this was going to transform, Mm -hmm. you know, services to citizens. And I was writing a lot about procurement and like really in the weeds kind of stuff like business type stories about IT, which was this huge market for the federal government. It bought like $50 billion in IT goods and services every year. It was this giant consumer. I'm meeting a lot of people who work for big Beltway contractors. I'm meeting a lot of tech and software people, Silicon Valley people who want to come into D.C. and like, you know, we're going to transform government, et cetera. And then nine months into that job, 9-11 happens. And it was like immediately transparent or apparent to people that this story was, I mean, we knew it was all going to change our lives and the way we live. But as a journalist, it was clear that this story was going to find its way into dominating whatever your beat was. Like, if you covered the military, obviously you were going to be covering a deployment someplace. If you covered the airline industry, you were going to be covering this, you know, seismic shock to the way we move around as a society and how do we do this safely. And pretty quickly, I would say, It became clear that the tech space I was writing about was going to become security focused because all of these companies that were trying to sell stuff to the government, you know, computers to make websites run faster and to help you pay your taxes online, suddenly they all wanted to sell software and solutions to the government to fight terrorism. It was about data integration, data analysis, how do we make it so the NSA and the CIA's computers can talk to one another? How do we upgrade the FBI's computer system, which was ancient, I mean, even for the early 2000s? And all of these people that I had been talking to in this tech business space, suddenly all the three-letter agencies are popping up. They want to sell to CIA. They want to sell to NSA. All these agencies have initiatives they want to create. Um, They're all focused on security. Uh, A new office of Homeland Security gets set up at the White House house and you know nobody was covering these agencies the intelligence community not just the technological piece of it but like the work that they were going to be doing no one was covering that at GovExec really and i kind of raised my hand and said can i have this intel beat and they said yes go take it um we had a pentagon correspondent you know we had other people but nobody focused on the intel agencies. so like that was it i was 25 years old um. you know barely in journalism this awful day happened it completely changed everyone's life it totally changed my career i mean that that's it i mean long answer of basically like yeah how did i get into this 911 i mean that was it and it's
0: and and i've just never stopped writing about it Wow. I mean, well, not an unfamiliar story, I think, for for particularly DC-oriented folks, um, but uh, uh, certainly a trajectory. I'm not going to lie. I part of me wants to spend this episode delving into your sketch comedy career uh, in more depth, but, <laughs> but I'm going to stick to the more sober it's topic. It's expressed in all the things I do. Yeah, There you go. Exactly. But I'll stick to the more sober topic of 9-11 okay. and, and its aftermath, for better or for worse. Uh, so you come up as a, uh, maybe not quite a cub reporter, but a young reporter in this yeah. post 9-11 era. How did that make you think about national security and the government? And particularly, I, I, what were your priors going into this? You, you mentioned studying politics. Were you interested in national security stuff before 9-11 and this beat kind of became evident to you and and, and you were assigned to it? Or did you come to it relatively new, writing that post 9-11 emotional, psychological wave the country was riding of a great d- degree of jingoism and national solidarity early on, shortly followed by, at least in a lot of circles, uh, a growing levels of distrust, discomfort, um, frustration at times with the government. How, does it, how did it shape how you think about national security as an enterprise as, in, as an outsider trying to break in, as a journalist trying to understand what's happening?
1: I think looking back on it, I was always interested in national security and foreign policy, but I never would have been able to articulate that. Um, So I have like vivid memories of some kind of key moments growing up. I mean, so I was born in 1976. I mean, I, I very much vividly remember, you know, the period from like 1983 to around 89 as one of being one of great fear, but also great promise. I mean, we genuinely all like as kids wondered if, you know, we were going to die in a nuclear war. Um, We wondered if like Red Dawn, the Russians were going to land in our backyard my friends and I would actually like play out scenarios where what we would do, like when we were like eight or nine of what would happen if the Russians invaded. Um, you know, uh, I actually interviewed on Shatter, the, the the director of the movie, the day after. That was there was That's a reason. Right. For that. I, I, was, remember. I, was, I was fixated on this stuff. <laughs> and so there was that real fear um, I was very interested in the space program so I think that gave me some kind of touch point into the military but again I wouldn't have I mean I didn't like think I joined the military but I also have this vivider rem- remind uh, memory of the Berlin Wall falling down and seeing that on television uh, and coming home one day from school and like seeing events in Moscow that predated the Soviet Union's collapse and feeling that amazed that it seemed like almost overnight the world that we had all as kids been, and adults too, but, you know, had been taught was this dangerous place where the United States was pitted against this, you know, evil empire of the Soviet Union. That whole place was just gone. And like, did we win? Like, is that world kind of over now? And just being completely fascinated by that and, and being totally aware that you know we were living in something momentous and i think it was the first I, th- I do think it was like the first time that as a young person i ever thought you're kind of seeing history happen here um and then you know the it was the first gulf war was in what 90 or 91 and that was live on television and that was just a kind of you know a, a transfixing experience so all of this stuff i was just riveted by it i think in ways that certainly a lot of my peers didn't really pay attention to. Um, And uh, so I think that I kind of was maybe primed for thinking about national security and foreign policy because it had been a story that I'd paid so much attention to growing up. And I liked spy movies and, you know, I liked war movies. Um, So when the opportunity arose to write about intelligence agencies, I think that there was already kind of a natural... Affinity for for that world. But what was also super interesting was just as a journalistic exercise, you know, suddenly these agencies like CIA and NSA and others were front and center in this new emergency that had enveloped all of us. And it was, you know, and and it was all anybody was talking about in Washington, which was that this is going to be a war fought by the intelligence agencies. We're going to have to preempt these terrorist attacks. We're going to have to figure out what they're about to do before they do it. And, you know, to me, that was so exciting because, here was these, these organizations that now the stakes could not be higher for them. Uh, and they were all talking about transformation and how, you know, we, we no longer are fighting communists in the Soviet Union. Now we have to adapt to this network enemy. And like every – they were just going through this just tumultuous change. And as a writer – that is just the most fertile territory for, for drama, for great stories and writing. The stakes are huge. They're up against a wall. They're racing the clock. Everything is unfamiliar. They're having to change what they do. Oh, and by the way, they're highly secretive organizations that aren't supposed to talk about what they do. And if you're a reporter, you're just like, let me at it. <laughs> you know, like, oh, I'm not supposed to know about this? Yes, please. I would like to investigate you. Um, so I think that I kind of came at it from just, you know, having some of that background, but also just thinking like, my God, this is an amazing story and I want to write about it and I want to know as much as I can. And I've just, I kind of have never stopped being curious about that world.
0: What do you think your kind of assumptions are, or maybe not your assumptions, your your base posture towards investigating some of these agencies? I mean, do you go in with the assumption that they are overly inclined to secrecy, uh, that there's, that they're under inclined to secrecy or in terms of effectiveness of secrecy, are they, they're, they're leaky. Uh, you know, how do you, do you have a kind of set mindset about what their motivation are, what their kind of unique institutional culture are? It probably varies a little bit institution to institution, but I I just want to get a sense of how you think about these government agencies generally before we drift to the topic at hand, which is this much more kind of uh, narrow, specific and unique topic of UAPs. I had no assumptions about the
1: intelligence community when I started covering it because I knew practically nothing about it. I mean, I I knew what I'd seen in movies. Um, I knew what I'd seen in books. I knew those things were almost certainly not accurate, Um, but I just knew nothing. And importantly, I knew nothing about the history of the intelligence community in the 1960s and 70s where, you know, there were these tremendous scandals about, you know, domestic intelligence gathering and spying on war protesters and all of the things that led to the kind of the regulatory environment that was imposed on the intelligence community and the profound mistrust that Americans had towards the CIA and the FBI. I knew none of that. So my education started actually with former intelligence officials who had retired before 9-11, but like fairly recently before 9-11, were now working for contractors. So they had a, their business was trying to drum up, you know, contracts with their old envi- agencies for the places they work now. And they were happy to talk to a young reporter in part because they were, frankly, selling something. Um, but also because some of them kind of, I think, like, you know, saw an opportunity to be like, ah, he's, I can take him under my wing and talk to this kid about how the intelligence community works. And many of them were actually pretty cynical about the intelligence agencies, not as a... You know, ugh, they're terrible places that spy on Americans because they grew up in the, the post environment of that. Their mentors were the ones that had been there in the 50s and the 60s. These were people I was talking to who had grown up in it in the 80s who were in that place where it's like we do not spy on Americans. You know, we have an executive order 12 triple three that dictates what we do. Um, and they looked at it much more. They were cynical of it as a bureaucracy. For them, it was like a big corporation they worked for and they were all kind of grumpy about it and had strong opinions on what works and what doesn't. So my kind of initial introduction, my introduction to writing about the Intel community was to thinking about it like an organization, like a big company and talking to the ex-employees <laughs> who worked there about how it worked. And I think that I kind of, kind of very kind of dispassionate in a way. It wasn't, it wasn't a policy focus to begin with. It was more like, how does it work? Who are the personalities? Why is the CIA different than the NSA? What are their quirks? Uh, and it was a much more kind of like cultural um, immersion, if you like, um, which probably also had its downsides in that it took me a year or two to really get wise to the broader policy dimensions in the history of You know, these are agencies, you know, that have tremendous power and authority that have abused it and have abused it quite significantly in the past and not just in our own country. Um, So that was part of the education as well. I was lucky in that my editor at the time at government executive, she was a very objective journalist and she was great, but she was just like an amazing super lefty who like, you know, (laughs) protested the Sandinista or the protested um, the Reagan administration's intervention in Nicaragua in the 80s I mean she was just like but she but she kind of kept it under control but she was the one who was always kind of like nudging me and being like you might want to look into what the CIA once did um so I had that influence on me as well as somebody who was checking me and like don't start like getting source capture here and being like a fanboy for these agencies you know these are organizations that are under tight political control for a reason. So that kind of is kind of how I came into it, very organizational with then kind of becoming wise to its history. But, I mean, always with a focus on what are they doing and what is the task and the mission in front of them. And and I got to say, for the most part, most people that I encountered and then when I started meeting people who worked in the intelligence agencies, what impressed me was that, you know, they're normal people, who like live in the suburbs and they get up and they go to work every day and it's like a job except like the job is really freaking cool and really unusual sometimes, but they're not, they're just trying to do the best thing, the best they can, uh, by and large. And I think it taught me kind of to see them not as superhuman, um, and also not as evil. Um, it's just people who are trying their hardest and make mistakes sometimes. And You know, after a a couple of years of writing about these agencies, it was less like, ooh, the CIA. And it was more like, I'm just writing about a company, basically.
0: That's so interesting. But let's shift the topic now. We're, you know, we're 20 minutes in. We've been teasing people now. Let's shift and actually have to the topic at hand about UAPs or UFOs. When was the first time the question about UAPs or UFOs kind of crossed your awareness as a as a t- serious topic of inquiry, I mean, I'm sure, especially if you followed science fiction, you followed space and things like that. You were aware of UFOs. Maybe you were a Fox Mulder dressed as Fox Mulder at X Files con back in the day. It's okay. This mm-hmm. is Shane. You might not be the only one on this call uh, that have had those sorts like, <laughs> of experiences. So, prevailing <laughs> interest might have existed uh, in an earlier stage. But but when did it come become aware to you that this was actually a story, perhaps, um, you with professional, a professional lens in, in the scope of your journalistic enterprise. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. That, that Yeah, that, that's easy. I mean, like, so I, first off, yes, loved The X-Files, um, you know, loved movies about aliens. Contact was one of my favorite movies. So all of that were my priors, right? Just very, very primed like a believer kind of thing you know what I mean like not necessarily like a believer in the whole like you know communion alien abduction thing but like as somebody who do I believe that there is extraterrestrial life in the universe I, I'm pretty certain that there is it seems like mathematically like impossible there wouldn't be but yes big 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 sci-fi kind of fanboy. But with I was very interested in ETs in particular. Um, But the the moment that I realized that it was a great national security story and one that I wish that I had broken was in December 2017 when Helene Cooper, writing with um, Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal at the New York Times, broke this story that the Pentagon had this secret office that was studying UFOs and in particular was studying footage of unidentified flying objects that had been captured by the cameras in fighter aircraft. And I genuinely thought that was probably the most important story I'd seen the entire year. I don't remember what else broke in 2017 other than, like, the obvious, given who was in the White House <laughs> in his first year. Right. <clears throat> but I, mean, I just remember thinking, like, oh, my God, this, this is extraordinary. Like, wait, hold on a second. Like, not that the Pentagon is saying... There are aliens, but you're telling me the Pentagon is investigating the possibility that there might be visitations by UFOs or that there are these craft that we don't know what they are and they don't seem to be foreign technology or we're not sure they are yet. I just found that to be... A huge story, utterly important. And what I liked so much about it, too, I must admit, was that nobody was saying it's aliens. It was, we don't know what this thing is. These things are. We should investigate them. They could be a national security threat. That's what we do here at the Pentagon. We protect against threats. Um, and I just thought, like, this is totally rational. This makes this makes all the sense in the world that they would be looking at this. And it was very hard to dismiss, because nobody was saying, you know, oh, it's Little Green Men. And it didn't sound conspiratorial. It just sounded like, of course, the Pentagon's looking at this. And it was written in this very sane kind of way. Um, it had that amazing footage that went with it from these, these, these video captures. And I and when I it was truly like at that moment where I thought, okay this has been a story that's been out there for some years. It's great that they broke it. I want to know more. And, you know, that really is the moment, too, where the national security community starts to have a different kind of conversation about UFOs and one that is not, you know, you know, met with giggles or, you know, concerns that people are going to look at you like you're crazy. But like, no, we're just going to have a very rational conversation about there are things flying around. We literally don't know what they are. They're unidentified. What are they? We should probably figure out what they are and make sure they're not, you know, Chinese or Russian drones or something. And I just thought that was a great task for journalism. Um, You know, you go into something with no assumptions, you ask questions, you evaluate the evidence as best you can, and you write it straight and objectively. And it seemed like that's what Helene and her colleagues were doing with that story. Um, And, you know, I give them, you know, a ton of credit because they did that story the right way. And it changed the way we all think about this as reporters. Um, And, and, you know, yeah, and, and it's kind of like, in a way, it's like, I suppose I was also very secretly happy that it like gave me permission to write seriously about a subject <laughs> that I never would have been able the to write. Excuse about you were waiting before. for, I mean, or that I didn't know I needed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. It was just it kind of broke the dam.
0: So you've hit on something here that I think is is really important to understand and that's just how much there has been this sort of sea change in perspective around this issue set really in a lot of different domains and it sounds like your uh, interest your reawakened interest and focus on it has aligned with that to some degree i'm kind of curious from You know, as somebody who's worked in media for a long time before this kind of 2017 story broke the dam to some extent and after. Now, you know, what has been the kind of mainstream media reaction to UFO stories? It's obviously something that's sensationalistic, it's tied up in our pop culture, Um, it's tied up in a you know, conspiratorial aspects of our pop culture, right, that have a, uh, you know, particular kind of cultural valence with the X-Files and everything else. You know, is this a story that you, the sort of story you face resistance on or that you might have faced resistance on prior to 2017? Um, You know, how do newsrooms think about this story against the terrain of other issues that they're covering?
1: Well, I think it's not a terrain that newsrooms have by and large, said, let's unleash reporters to go investigate this stuff. I mean, some publications and some journalists have mounted their own investigations of sightings and, uh, you know, some of the trade press has done that. But the big papers, the position largely has been, let's wait to see what reports or what statements the Pentagon or the intelligence agencies issue, and let's write off of that, which is a fairly, frankly, standard position for a lot of newsrooms to take on any number of (laughs) topics. Like, well, it'll be news when the government says something. Um, And I don't think that that was a bad position, actually, at all, because... The Pentagon and the intelligence community were quite explicit in public saying, we're going to start studying these things and we will kind of report back to you as we're making progress and we'll let the public know what we're making of things. So that seemed like a very natural place to just sort of wait for for news to, to come along. Now, that's not to say that there weren't other journalists like Leslie Kink is probably the most prominent who were out there interviewing people who had, you know, had uh, experiences and sightings, looking into what the military knew about it, um, looking, talking to people who claimed that the government was hiding evidence, including of things like crashed vehicles. And all of that work was definitely happening. But, you know, by and large, most news organizations were just kind of waiting to see what the official investigations bore out. And to some degree, that's what I was doing, too. I mean, I think I was probably having maybe more conversations than other national security reporters kind of, you know, here and there with people about the UFO topic. Um, But I wasn't like actively writing stories about it separate from, you know, kind of tracking the government investigation and their evolution and their thinking on it. I don't think I would have faced resistance. Um, And then when we did ultimately recently at the post start looking into some allegations about you know crash retrieval and these kinds of things my editors didn't resist that it was more like all right like look into it and let's see where it goes but like let's obviously be appropriately skeptical about this topic as we would any very novel topic in which people are making bold claims and maybe don't have a lot of evidence so i think it's like sober steady That's kind of been the position of a lot of news organizations, but also like deeply interested. I mean, when 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 the when the intelligence director's office comes out and says, you know, we've evaluated one hundred and forty four sightings of objects and some of them, we just don't know what they are. That's fascinating. That's like and that's a hugely newsworthy story because. It doesn't mean, and therefore it's aliens. It could be some novel technology that we don't understand. Well, that's a big national security issue, isn't it? If like the Russians or the Chinese or someone have built an object that can fly in ways we don't understand – that's a pretty impressive accomplishment and a pretty serious concern for the United States. Um, is it some kind of atmospheric or scientific phenomena we don't understand? That's fascinating. Wow. Are we going to learn something new about the way the atmosphere behaves? I mean, all the potential for all of these stories to yield profoundly interesting results that had nothing to do with aliens was there. And I mean, of course, everyone's asking the question, is it aliens? So I think that that helped... Maybe make some newsrooms a little more willing to take the subject seriously because it wasn't just presumed what these things are, and, and 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 if the intelligence agencies were willing to come out and say publicly, "Hey, we don't have an answer for this," when usually you think of these agencies as trying to definitively say and answer a question, um, that was like that was unusual too and newsworthy. So it just. It, it, it was the whole environment for writing about this stuff was just a lot more um, mature uh, and grown up, frankly, and and curious than it had been probably, you know, prior to 2017 when the Times broke that important story. And subjects about, you know, UFO sightings were basically like you were writing about Bigfoot. I mean, you're just doing like <laughs> urban legends. That way it was just not taken seriously. And it's like it's maybe fine for the History Channel at 1 a.m., but it's not for The Washington
0: Post not the march the history channel at 1am it has its, it has its place hey. in, in our, oh, in yeah, our media yeah. A, um, atmosphere
1: yeah i absolutely does
0: I, I i'm a fan <laughs> so you know it, you spent time the last few years investigating these stories you mentioned the crash retrievals investigations getting more into the nitty-gritty beyond the government statement uh, aspect of the story which itself has been changed as you noted like the government's been more transparent about this but i'm curious what how you go about sourcing and investigating these sorts of stories without betraying any confidences, obviously, but what is the strategy? How how much does it overlap with and how much does it depart from other sorts of national security stories that are in a similar space of classified information, government conduct? And in particular, you know, who are your sources and what are they telling you? You know, what's on the cutting room floor? What is their motivation um, that kind of brings forward the, the different scraps of narrative? You know, my understanding is, although correct me if I'm wrong, you are getting a lot of information. Only some stuff rises to the level that you can verify it; that it warrants a news story, right? But is there a lot of other unsubstantiated rumors or discussions that isn't rising to that level that you're seeing these patterns of um, that, you know, maybe open up new avenues for for future inquiry?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the sources of information on this subject are often <clears throat> not all that different as a category than the kinds of people I deal with every day on other national security related stories. They're people who work in the government. You know, they're people who work um, in intelligence agencies or adjacent to them, maybe a congressional committee or um, perhaps at a contractor or, or, or an educational institution, um, But, you know, what ends up happening is there, you know, in terms of there being, you know, a group of people who believe that there is evidence the government is hiding from the public about UFOs and their non-terrestrial origins, um, those people, generally what they end up doing is they find journalists who they can see are writing about this subject. And which is precisely what happens when, you know, somebody wants to tell you about drone operations in Afghanistan. They find a person at, you know, the Times or the Post or the Journal or whatever who's writing about that subject and they seek them out. Sometimes there are intermediaries that broker those introductions and those relationships. They are often very skeptical to begin with about talking to a journalist because they are pretty sure, particularly a mainstream journalist, might not take them seriously. Um, but by and large, you know, they—I they, think that they've—they've they've found their way to talking to me and to other people, um, very much in the same way that you know they just any kind of whistleblower or 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 would-be source would do. I think that what's made writing about this topic so hard and so frustrating, particularly in the past year or so, is there are a lot of people. <laughs> And some of them have spoken publicly and have written on websites about their experience who make extraordinary claims and who just don't have any hard evidence to back it up. And they you know and by claims I mean things like the government has a secret crash retrieval program that has identified extraterrestrial spacecraft or has obtained material that is clearly not human in origin. Like these are like allegations that they would make and characterizations they would make. But nobody can show you a picture. Nobody can actually show you the material. No one's ever actually held it themselves. It's always that they know someone who told them about it, or they've kind of deduced the, the existence of these programs. And just as a journalistic exercise, that's kind of maddening. And it's not that we as journalists don't use secondhand accounts. I mean, we do all the time. I mean, we we talk all the time to people who were, you know, briefed on an intelligence report, right? We don't see the intelligence report. We trust that our sources are accurately conveying what they were briefed on. But 99 times out of 100... (laughs) Those subjects are about like known human activity, (laughs) you know, things happening (laughs) in Ukraine, (laughs) like things that we know are real um, and that we can substantiate through other sources and sometimes just through like, you know, using our eyes. Um, This is different when it comes to UAPs. You're talking here about people who are making allegations about something that is utterly novel by definition. It's one of the reasons why I think for so long, the journalists, we were so happy to have the footage that were taken by these military aircraft of these objects zipping around and doing all these wild, apparent wild things, because that was something we could look at and we could interrogate. It was data, you know, it was sensors, it was images. And so, you know, a lot of time that I and others spent in the beginning, like from like 2018, 19, 20, 21, was trying to understand those videos, talking to experts about them, understanding how the government was analyzing them, because that was like something we could look at, that was more objective data. Uh, And I think that once that story kind of played out, it left room for the kind of next wave, which was these people saying, well, hey, we've been telling you for years that there's more to the story in the form of this crash retrieval program, and those, kind of people kind of had their moment, Um, you know, you talk about stuff that's rough on the cutting room floor. I mean, like, we've actually not written about a crash retrieval program. And when I have investigated that, I mean, none of it rose to the level that I would put in a story. Um, People have now testified publicly about their experiences and their claims, and that's a matter of public record. And I suppose you could write about what they say, um, but you know, I've I have not seen anything that would you know rise to the level of credibility that I would put my name on it in a news story when it comes to that particular part of the UFO story.
0: So I, I think the classic explanation you will get from people who who want to believe in these stories, who do believe in them, as to why you would have all these secondhand rumors, which I take to be not an uncommon phenomenon, maybe wildly common, but it sounds like there are multiple people who have been making claims along these lines over the years um, with ties to government. You know, have some some, some perhaps claim to credibility on a certain level, but are still only relaying these secondhand sorts of claims. The, the excuse, I think, is, is conspiracy, is cover-up uh, into mm-hmm. the men in black phenomena that we know from X-Files or wherever else, which is the idea that the government is very aggressively and savably and capably suppressing information about this, hiding it, concealing it. Um, you know, what is your sense of that sort of argument, that sort of claim, uh, and, and how does it line up with your experience with the government's work in other spaces? Do you find that to be a possible or plausible explanation? Um, Or do you find that implausible and that feeds into your assessment of the credibility of these stories?
1: You know, it's interesting because, you know, one of the first questions you asked me was for like, what were my prior assumptions about the intelligence community when I started writing about it? And I remember one of like the first kind of, aha moments that i had as a kind of journeyman reporter was when i realized that the intelligence community and this is true of the government is so big and so cumbersome and so bureaucratic and there are so many people involved in it it could never pull off the conspiracies that it is alleged to have committed over time i mean it was i mean i i just i remember having these moments of realization like talking to you know people who had worked at very senior levels in the intelligence community about like or things around like whether the government caused 9/11 you know and just or was behind 9/11 and you realize it, it's not capable of the vast grand conspiracies that it's been charged with committing which is not to say that it can't like you know the CIA hasn't like mounted a coup someplace but like the things that the intelligence community is said to have done particularly on like if you take crash retrieval, for instance, I mean, there would be thousands of people knowingly engaged in a decades long campaign to suppress information from the public about one of the most astounding set of facts in human history. No, they they wouldn't be able to keep it a secret. They wouldn't be able to pull it off. Um, There's something about conspiracy theories that are very appealing to people because they sort of bring these mega institutions in a weird way, like down to the level of just like basic human venality, and like, yes, we can understand you and you're corrupt and we know what are no, I mean, it's like, they're not, I guess I'm not articulating this the way I want to, but the, it, they're not that sophisticated, uh, you know, it, it, it's um, <clears throat> these, these schemes and alleged plots are to almost too, are they're too elaborate for an intelligence community to pull off and keep secret um, uh, uh, which is not to say that they can't do amazing things, that they haven't pulled off incredible, extraordinary intelligence operations. But, you know, the folklore that's, you know, surrounds so much of what the intelligence agencies have done and are capable of just is betrayed by their very nature and the way that they work and that they are slow and deliberate and, you know, and not very good at keeping secrets sometimes. So for me, I think, once I realized that most of the kind of the, the the stories and the assumptions that were attributed to intelligence agencies were more the product of people's imagination and frankly, probably the largely the product of Hollywood's portrayal of the CIA as some kind of, you know, hyper-capable, you know, omniscient organization. When all I realized that that was generally not true, um, <clears throat> it was a pretty big breakthrough for me as a reporter. And it definitely colors how I think about the ufo story so like when i talk to people who claim that there is you know a, a hidden spacecraft you know and that a government contractor in california is hiding pieces of it which are this is, these are claims that i've heard from multiple people you know i asked them i said well how come nobody's ever talked about it like how is that fact a secret for 70 years you know why hasn't somebody shown it to us and you know i mean and again i mean these are these are You know, you can't prove a negative, but that just doesn't comport with the reality of the intelligence community that I've spent 20 years writing about. I do not think thousands of people over decades would have been able to keep that fact a secret, Um, which is not to say that the government doesn't have debris and material that it cannot attribute to a foreign government. But the idea that they are knowingly hiding alien life which is another thing that people have been saying recently. Um, I I just do not believe that that fact is likely to stay um, unknown to the broader public, particularly because thousands of people would have to know about it uh, in these alleged sets of programs. So, you know, people, the, the public has often a very exaggerated and inflated view of what the intelligence community is capable of doing and what it is capable of keeping secret. And that actually applies uh, in spades to the UFO story. I think
0: so. We're in this era of growing transparency, at least, at least what well, looks like transparency, I should say, by the government. All right. Since this 2017 story broke, really, um, we have started seeing important response to congressional pressure, uh, but not entirely. More reports, acknowledgments. Acknowledge, excuse me. like us try that again more reports, more acknowledgments by government agencies that they are, in fact, looking into these things, uh, often asserting that they don't don't know what they are, that it's a mystery to them as well. Um, we've seen, you know, 10, 12 page reports that are the unclassified, you know, pulled together summary of longer reports or larger bodies of information that, that basically say something to that effect, which is that, yeah, these things happen. We don't know much about it. How do you frame or how do you view those claims by the government in this particular era? Do you, is your sense that the government actually is being more transparent? I mean, they're obviously not throwing the doors open, but are they showing us the tip of an iceberg that is an iceberg or is there more, is there a reason to think that there might be more subterfuge and obfuscation still happening in regards to this sort of issue set? Well, that's an interesting question.
1: And so... I, I want to say this at the outset. I, I have no evidence that the government is knowingly hiding evidence of, you know, extraterrestrial life. Like I have seen zero evidence to support that. That doesn't mean they're not, but you know, I have seen no evidence of that. And for all the reasons I said before, I don't think that that fact would stay secret. Um, I think that the government has been remarkably more transparent in revealing the abundance of information that it has on these strange sightings um and by the way one reason it's collecting more data about ufos is because as a matter of policy now the military tells service personnel if you see an unidentified anomalous phenomena as they're now calling them report it like don't be afraid that people are going to laugh at you, like say it, because we have now discovered that some of these things actually are adversary aircraft. I mean, some of these things are probably sophisticated Chinese drones, and we need to under we the military need to understand them and 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 process that information and and keep track of this stuff. So I think that they're being more transparent about it, but not necessarily for the reasons that some people might think. Like I don't think that the government is slowly warming the public up to the idea that we have been visited by, you know, beings from outer space and that this is kind of like, you know, getting us in through the shallow end. I think that they're being more transparent about this stuff in part because some members of Congress are demanding it as a national security imperative um, because they perhaps, military does want to see new funding for countering things like, you know, Chinese and Russian hypersonics. Um, You know, There's just more stuff being captured and reported. So they kind of have to address it. Um, But the government also has been pretty reluctant in some cases to reveal too much for that classic concern about exposing intelligence sources and methods. I mean, there was a there was a moment maybe a year ago or so when two top Pentagon officials were testifying in Congress. And it was kind of like it was a momentous hearing because they were the most senior officials ever to have testified about the ufo uap topic in front of congress and you know it was kind of they had to like clear the air in the beginning and there were some chuckles like we're not here to talk about little green men blah 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 but one guy was like but i am a big sci-fi fan so it was kind of like they kind of like took the tension out of the room a little bit um and at one point i remember asked one of these officials about have you ever retrieved strange craft or debris from underwater And it was one of those questions where a member of Congress kind of like asks it, and you know that the member of Congress kind of knows the answer, but he's going to ask the question and see what he can elicit publicly from the witness. And as I recall, the official said, you know, Congressman, I don't want to talk about that here. I'm happy to talk about it in closed session. And, you know, the conspiratorial person might look at that and go, aha, he's asking him about the underwater spacecraft. And what I looked at that and said, like, he's not going to talk about it because, how the united states military retrieves objects from the bottom of the floor of the ocean is like a really secretive operation that involves all kinds of sensors and activities that this official is not going to talk about in public and in any way reveal the capabilities of the u.s military and the intelligence community so a lot of the conversation that the intelligence community has been having about these phenomena is restricted by how much they want to say about how they know certain things or where they have retrieved certain things. Like if you were to say, yes, and we retrieve this X feet down in the water using the following submersible in the following location, well, you would have just revealed a ton about where, you know, deep sea intelligence gathering might be going on. And they're just simply not going to do that. So, you know, there's also, I mean, I know from talking to people who do believe that there is a crash retrieval program, know that there are very sophisticated, you know, sensor images and possibly even satellite data that has been used to capture images of UAPs, doesn't mean they're aliens, but that is not stuff that the government is going to put on a website. That is very revealing of intelligence gathering capabilities and of sources and of methods. And so when you see the government being cagey, it's not that they're hiding aliens. <laughs> they're hiding the way that they spy on Russia and China and the way that they gather information that in the course of doing that, they're picking up a lot of, you know, sensor data and possibly even images of these unidentified anomalous phenomena. So I always just try to keep that in mind. That, you know, it's it's not that the US are showing us the tip of an iceberg. Probably, but that doesn't mean that behind closed doors, you know, Lloyd Austin and Ron Moultrie and all the Pentagon heavies you are like, you know, well, we can't show them the whole alien iceberg. You know, it's like, yes, you're seeing the tip of an (laughs) iceberg of a massive intelligence gathering by the United States government and the United States military. Uh, And they're showing you a peak of that uh, and being honest about the moments when they can look at an object and say, we don't know what that thing is. And we're now willing to tell you we don't know what it is.
0: You've mentioned it a few times, but I, I want to squarely address it now, just because earlier you said, you know, you crunch the numbers. You think that, in fact, there's a good case to be made. There is alien life in the universe. But how do you think about, you know, the ET question, this idea that, uh, you know, alien life might be involved in any of these sorts of phenomenon? Um, you know, is that something, how should we be thinking about that as a possibility based off of the evidence you see in the accounts that you've heard?
1: Well, I mean I haven't seen any evidence that it's alien life obviously, but you know, could it be? Yeah. I mean I'm I'm, I'm oh, I am open-minded to this. I mean, Lawfare podcast listeners know my priors. I am I want to believe. Um, <laughs> and I'm totally open to that possibility. Um I think though that we have I mean we do have to approach the question, you know, rationally and try to do it to some degree with our understanding of, you know, physics and, you know, material science and whatnot Um, i am not one of those people who like believes that um you know if aliens have visited the earth i mean there are those who like you say like oh well then why are they just observing us and why would they bother us and why wouldn't they just harvest us i mean i don't know i mean if you if you think if you're willing to entertain the possibility that extraterrestrials have visited the Earth. I don't think that you should like tie yourself into knots wondering why they did it. I mean, like, I mean, you could, those are interesting <laughs> questions to explore. But like, like, maybe we just start with the basic did they or did they not come here? Um, and, you know, I don't know if what we're looking at in some of these more extraordinary images is evidence of that. Um, what I do know is that in many of these, uh, particularly in some of the um, images captured by, military aircraft, the government has actually attributed some of these things to adversary aircraft, um, atmospheric phenomena, uh, weather balloons, um, uh, uh, optical illusions. I think there's a one of the more famous um, pieces of footage involves something called the go fast, where there's this pilot that's tracking this object that seems to be just flying at amazing speed. Over the surface of the ocean, and the pilot is just kind of like giddy with excitement over this. He can't believe what he's seeing. If I'm not mistaken, that has been attributed to basically an optical illusion that the or that the thing that he's watching move is not moving as fast as he thinks it is. But then there is the famous Flying Tic Tac video, which is the one that shows this capsule-shaped object hovering over the water, and it was not only witnessed by four pilots in two different planes, but it was picked up on their sensors, it was picked up on sensors of the U.S. aircraft carrier Nimitz. That still hasn't been explained. And that object is behaving in astounding ways that look very, very strange. I hold open the possibility that that is something extraordinary. I don't know what that is. As far as I know, the military hasn't said what it is. Does that mean it's aliens? No. But I do think that if you're going to entertain them, if we're going to actually talk seriously about unidentified anomalous phenomena and things behaving very strangely, we just have to be willing to entertain the possibility that it might be something that's beyond our understanding. And like, I'm very comfortable just kind of dwelling in that mystery. Like it's very weird, I think as a journalist, for me, I'm always trying to answer questions. I want to put labels on things. I want to attribute information to sources. I want to know what is that thing? Who said what? When did this happen? And I find this story to be unique in what I cover and that I am perfectly happy not knowing (laughs) And just sort of being amazed and kind of like just floating in the wonder of it all. And maybe the military will figure out what it is, you know? I mean, some of these more extraordinary videos, they have finally given answers to them. And I say, great, that's wonderful. Now we know what the hell this thing was. Um, So... I, I, I don't mind kind of like just having that, you know, bit of mystery and and entertaining that it's maybe it's not extraterrestrial. Maybe it's interdimensional. Who knows? Let your mind go wild. This is the part where the fiction writer in me gets to like play <laughs> with the journalist and they get along very well on this topic. Um, I don't know. It's it, it's, it's um, I, I I still am very open to the possibility of it. Um you know, I and I and, and, and you know, I it, to me, the question of is there alien life in the universe is like not even an interesting question. Again, I just I'm like, well, I, I I it's crazy to me to think that there's not. I mean, how how in the vastness of this universe do we presume that we're the only intelligent life form? That doesn't make any sense to me. The question of why they would visit Earth is a whole other you know kettle of fish obviously or and how
0: for that matter yeah
1: yeah yeah then you get into the whole question of like you know that's is why i said you know we have to approach it from our understanding of like of, you know, physics, I mean, we cannot conceive, I think, of how another species would travel the tremendous interstellar distances to come here, how that is possible. And yeah, okay, maybe wormholes or they've invented warp drive. I don't know. This is where you get into the realm of science fiction, which I think is like highly entertaining, but it doesn't it's not instructive to the question. And and, which is why I think if you're just being, if you want to just be completely rational about it and you look at something like the flying tic-tac, you should probably presume that it is a highly sophisticated novel human technology or a phenomenon or some kind of atmospheric thing. Like, if you're going to say, like, we have to put money on what it is, you should probably put money on Chinese or Russian technology and not aliens if you're just having to make a bet, like if somebody forced you to make a bet, because that is the more rational explanation. And by the way, if China or Russia has built an object that is capable of accelerating from, you know, zero to Mach 4 or whatever they think this thing did and has no heat signature and no visible signs of propulsion and is able to go from basically the surface of the ocean into near space and back again in seconds, um, we're kind of (laughs) screwed. Like if they've developed (laughs) that and we don't know how they did it, that's a big, big problem. Um, Now, I also happen to think that they probably haven't developed that. I think we would kind of know if they had made um, such a um, multi-generational technological leap. uh, And I don't really think Russia is capable of it. and I doubt China is too, but that's another reason why I think it's important that national security reporters also bring their attention to these subjects, because if that were the case, that's a story of, of major national security significance. If an adversary nation has made, you know, a quantum leap in technological development that we're, you know, um, uh, that, that's a, that's a, that has profound policy implications. So it's another reason why
0: I think we should be looking at this stuff. So we've talked a lot about the executive branch, uh, and their engagement with this topic, but there is another branch of government that has been very engaged and, and plays a maybe understated, uh, or under misunderstood or or under understood, underappreciated role in a lot of this. And that's, that's Congress. Um, the, the 2017 story you mentioned, a big part of it was that this, this program to investigate UAPs in the defense department was funded in part through the, the assistant of Senator Harry Reid, the late Senator Harry Reid, you know, very influential democratic Senator who helped secure funding for it for several years and was a pretty vocal and outspoken uh, supporter of research into UAPs. Um, and we've seen a new generation of members of Congress kind of take up this issue in different ways. Uh, you know, we've seen a number of hearings and a number of committees, um, some focused on U.S. officials. The most recent one, which we talked about on the Lawfare podcast, being a little bit more bringing in a number of outside witnesses, former government officials, but uh, individuals including a whistleblower, David Grush, uh, who you mentioned before, who uh, you know said, essentially relayed some of these secondhand assertions that he had spoken to people who claimed they had seen alien bodies and alien spacecraft that had been recovered or attributed, um, recovered materials to those sources. Um, and it's worth noting some of the people involved in that committee and that uh, hearing in Congress this side have been very engaged on this topic in sometimes unorthodox ways, not just by funding research. We had one incident where a trio of relatively young uh, Republican members of Congress essentially showed up at a military base and uh, kind of argued their way in um, to talk about a recent incident there, um, and that have been framing it as as a cover-up uh, in a lot of ways, uh, or a lack of transparency. Um, and perhaps not coincidentally, those are members of Congress who also feed into a lot of other more conspiratorial views that I think many would say lend themselves to uh, a skeptical view of government, a skeptical of public institutions. What should we make of the congressional dynamics around this? How do you think about the politics and particularly the congressional politics of this issue set? Which ways is it healthy? Which ways is it unhealthy? And how do we have to think about these reports um, and these events like this committee hearing in light of those politics?
1: Yeah, I think I think you use the right word. It is really the most underappreciated aspect maybe of this story. And and, and it was in many ways one of the most important ones because what these members are doing, and Harry Reid was the prime example, is they're providing number one money to investigate this subject. And what they're also doing more lately is they're crafting legislation aimed at protecting whistleblowers who want to come forward from the executive branch and reveal what they might know about uh, information on UAPs. So I think it's so interesting because what this shows you is that if you're a member of Congress or if you're a senator, with a particular interest, or let's just say, like, let's just go there because I think Harry Reid probably fits this category. Like, you actually believe that aliens probably have visited the Earth. I, I mean, I have a, I mean, maybe Harry Reid said as much, but I kind of have a strong feeling that Harry Reid was very much in the I believe category. And if I'm mischaracterizing him, I apologize. But that that is the vibe. Um, and you have the power to authorize millions or tens of millions of dollars and write law and demand testimony on this subject. That is you have powerful tools as a lawmaker to then investigate a thing that makes you curious. Right. And that is quite controversial. And many people would regard as crazy. I don't personally, but many people might. (laughs) Um, So that is just a fascinating part of this subject. And so much of what we're learning about UAPs and the executive branch's assessment of what those things are that are flying around or floating around out there is because lawmakers are pressing for it. Um, And, you know, are they getting full answers? No, I think they're not. Are some of them frustrated? Yes. Um, Some of their, by the way, their pressure for demanding transparency on this issue from government is not motivated so much by a suspicion that, they think the government's hiding uh, evidence of aliens, it's because they think that the government and the military have routinely lied about other important matters to Congress. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, Senator Gillibrand, who has written some of the key legislation on whistleblower protections, I mean, she has a history of you know going toe-to-toe with the military over issues of the military hiding evidence of sexual abuse in the ranks. And I think probably it's fair to say, believes that she's been misled by senior members of the military. So some of these lawmakers are coming to this saying, you've hid things from us on important known topics before, so I'm going to bring a hammer down on you in other ways too, because I don't trust that you're always being straight with me. And that is the the job of Congress, of course, to demand answers from the executive branch and, and to be a check. So they've been, I think, generally speaking, you know, pretty helpful on this subject. I mean, some members of Congress, I think, have gone out and have said things that sound a little wild and maybe, you know, are, over, are exaggerating what they know, and that's not been super helpful. But by and large, you know, Congress has taken this seriously and has taken closed-door testimony from whistleblowers and tried to get to the bottom of claims around things like a crash retrieval program. So, you know, that's another part of the whole evolution in this is that that lawmakers actually feel confident enough to go out and have a grown up conversation and a hearing about this and don't think that their constituents are going to think they've lost their minds or laugh them out of the room. And that probably to some degree reflects, you know, a general public belief that, yeah, we should be looking into what these things are. And, you know, I don't know what the polling data says on this, but many people have believed that they've seen something strange in the sky. And so I probably I think that lawmakers probably feel that this is somewhat safe ground for them to explore as long as they are doing it in that objective way that's not making any presumptions about what these things are, but is simply saying, let's figure this out. Um, but that, it's been a, a really, really important, underappreciated part of, of the story. Um, how much further they're going to be able to go? I mean, we'll see. Um, you know, I think that the recent hearing by David Grush, who is this man who worked at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency um, and worked on a UAP task force, I, I think that that testimony may have set back some efforts uh, to get greater transparency and might make some members of Congress maybe more reluctant to push for answers to questions in the future because some of his claims were so extraordinary and he had no evidence. And I think that he came across... As, I don't want to say unserious because he's a serious person, but I, I don't think that that was a confidence-boosting you know, boosting exercise, that testimony. And I think that it gave people who are skeptical of the UAP story the chance to go seriously. Like, this is what we're doing is like the guy is going to testify about he thinks that or he's alluding to the fact that he thinks that people have maybe been killed for what they know about UFOs. And he did kind of seem to allude to that. It just was a very, um, I think for people, and I'll put myself in this category, who want to see more objective, level-headed discussion about this subject, it was not an encouraging performance. And I'm concerned that it's going to make some members of Congress gun shy about asking questions.
0: So I, w- I want to take our whole conversation today and kind of distill it down into into some Shane Harris life advice uh, for people <laughs> oh thinking God. about this this issue set. Um, you know, look you're you're a journalist an experienced journalist and. You know, that above all else, I think, trains you to be a critical consumer of information and of news, um, to think about how to frame uh, stories that are reported, uh, information you get from third parties, how to kind of sift through and say, OK, here's how I'm going to process this and turn it into what I think is a semblance of reality and do something responsible with it, perhaps as, as additional step. What is your advice in terms from a, let's say, media literacy sort of perspective for how people should approach these stories and this sort of phenomenon? And does that lend itself to any particular kind of policy valence for our more policy-oriented listening audience? What does that mean in terms of what Congress and the executive branch and other groups should be thinking about and what we as citizens should be pushing them to do around UAPs and and related issues? I mean, I think my my advice to people is... Probably informed by just the
1: way that I do journalism, which is when somebody makes an extraordinary claim, you know, ask them how they know that, you know, what evidence do you have to support this, you know, what are you basing this claim on or this this analysis on, and, you know, and basically, you know, make them show the work. Um, and I think that one of the ways that <clears throat> this discussion around UAPs has been good and has succeeded is when we have things like video evidence and we have into you know, the government coming forward and saying, we've analyzed this and here's what we think it is, or we don't know when we bring sober, objective, rational thinking to the question and we don't start to drift into the land of supposition and hearsay and uh, um, deduction and, uh, in, in in search of, you know, evidence to fit an outcome that we would prefer. So, I mean that's it's it's basically that it's go slow, <laughs> you know. Ask for the receipts. Um, do what a reporter would do, and and understand too that in the environment that we're in right now, in the media environment that we're in, where lots of people have websites and podcasts, uh, and are giving a platform to people who have made some pretty extraordinary claims, and who I think genuinely believe what they're saying. I don't think like Dave Grush is an example, I do not believe he's lying. I think he genuinely believes what he says. There is an entire media kind of industry built around elevating this information and these claims and putting these people out there. And if you just spent time listening to that or finding these videos on YouTube, you know, you might come away from this thinking like, why isn't the Washington Post paying more attention to this? Why isn't the New York Times writing about this? And, and The answer is we are paying attention to it. There's a reason you're not seeing some of these stories in the pages of major American newspapers. It's because they don't meet our standards of what we report. And I think that people should bring the kind of journalistic skepticism to this question. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we should not let wonder and curiosity and, and the, the thrill of discovery drive our thinking and our conversations about these things. I mean I, I mean, I kind of joked earlier that this is where like the fiction writer brain and the nonfiction journalist brain get along very well together. I mean, as a journalist, I always i'm driven by curiosity I'm driven by wonder I'm driven by what if. You always kind of start with a mystery when you're writing a piece of journalism and you seek to answer questions and try to solve the mystery. That's a great place for people to kind of dwell in. Um, But in our eagerness to, to find answers, right, we can't disregard facts. And I think that's obvious. That's common sense. People know that. But it really bears repeating and keeping in mind when we are talking about this particular subject, which, again, is something that is beyond the realm of our normal experience and sometimes ends up having very clear and even quotidian explanations and sometimes it's a mystery um i just think that that's really important to keep in mind so that people aren't misled because it's very easy on this story in particular to be misled by very persuasive sounding stories and claims that just don't have any evidence um and from a news literacy standpoint we should be aware of that in Every context, whether you're talking about UAPs or executive branch activity or a war, um, that is how we should always be approaching the news.
0: Well, on that very useful note, we are almost out of time, but we do have one last chatter tradition for which you are partially responsible uh, <laughs> yeah, that we yeah, have baby. to turn to, and that is, of course, the chatterbox. In this case, the metaphorical chatterbox, because I am I am physically remote and therefore pick, pre-selected a question for you. But your chatterbox question is: Who is someone in your field or a related one whose work more people should be following? Oh, oh, God.
1: Does it have to be journalism, or can I can I pull on my um my comedy and kind of fiction piece too? And and oh, uh, absolutely, that's a related I that? field. I think. Okay, yeah. I think it's a related field too. I'm going to do it. Then I'm going to say you should be following and listening to a brilliant comic actor and a very dear friend of mine named Drew Droege, um, D R O E G um, E. Drew and I went to college together, and he unlike me, did go to LA and pursue a career in the entertainment industry. He was a member of the Groundlings Comedy Troupe, which is this legendary comedy troupe that kind of produced all the greats for SNL, who are all his peers and his cohort, by the way. He is very much in that in that realm. Uh, he's actually off-Broadway right now in New York <laughs> doing a play oh. called Ti- uh, Titanic, which is like a musical of Titanic like told from the perspective of Celine Dion, I think. Um. <laughs> he's amazing. Some people will know him because if you've ever if you go on youtube and you google like chloe Sevigny video he became kind of famous for doing this impression of the actress chloe Sevigny, um which is amazing <laughs> it's brilliant he is brilliant he has a podcast called minor revelations with drew drogi um he is genuinely one of the funniest smartest people i know he is an absolute delight. He is just great. His podcast is great. Uh, so, yeah, in my related field of, of, of comedy, you should be paying a lot of attention to Drew Drogi. He's amazing. Go check out his podcast. Go see his show. Um, tell him I sent you. I love Drew. He's just he's he's the best and people should go laugh with him.
0: Well, that is a wonderful suggestion. I, I am pulling him up in my podcatcher as we speak. Um But we are sadly out of time today, but Shane, thank you so much for coming on Chatter in a different capacity (laughs) this time around. Uh, Your work in this area is so useful and invaluable. I think your perspective and getting into the brain of Shane Harris on UAPs is a super valuable perspective for those of us like me who who think about this stuff and want to think about it critically but openly. Uh, And it has been a super useful conversation. I'm sure listeners will agree. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very
1: much. It feels like it was a bit of a therapy
0: session, so um, I
1: will—I'll uh, send you your check.
0: That's what Chatter is here for. We'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> it was very cleansing. <laughs> All
1: right, thanks, God. This is actually this is really fun. Thank you for uh, turning the
0: tables. This was good. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.